Well, let me pray for us and we'll begin. God, we are grateful for another day of life, of breath. Um, we pray that every breath we have would be used in glorifying you from the um, things that may seem mundane throughout our week, that they would be done to your glory. Uh, the things that uh, we are clearly aware that we uh, gather to worship you on a day like this, that those would be done to your glory. And um, that we would be uh, living a life of walking in your ways according to your word. We thank you for your word, and we pray that you would guide us as we think today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, uh, I live in a neighborhood that uh, when it was first founded, this is what I, what I heard when it was first founded, we actually got our, our lot out of foreclosure. But the neighborhood was originally founded. It's called uh, Mission San Miguel. And so... Uh, it's got the kind of Hispanic flair to it, but really it was it was founded to kind of intentionally be like a Roman Catholic neighborhood. So I remember before, before we even bought our lot there, I called the homeowners association. I said, "Look, I said I am a Protestant pastor. Is that going to be a problem if we buy a lot and build a house in this neighborhood?" Uh, and uh, this person was he was just like a hired uh, company to to run the homeowners association. He's like, "Oh no, that's fine. Do whatever you want." And uh, so we did it. And, but anyway, it, it did not end up really primarily being that. But really, most of the founding people that moved in there initially are uh, very Roman Catholic. And when I say very, what I mean is like they take Roman Catholicism seriously. It's not like you, you may meet a lot of Roman Catholics who don't. They just kind of show up, you know, occasionally um, to mass or whatever. The, these folks are, are your very uh, regular faithful folks. And so um, I've joked before that uh, on, on Halloween, All Hallows' Eve, I have thought several times about dressing up like a 16th century monk and walking down to the community center with a hammer in hand and a copy of the 95 Theses and nailing them to the door of the community center. But... And Beth said no. Don't that's right. Beth said no. No, my... Uh, this, I, uh, yeah. That, so I decided uh, not to do that. It was... It really... I was just joking. I really wouldn't have done that. But, um, but we are starting a... So instead, we're going to have a five... Ser session series on Roman Catholicism. No, that's not really how this came to be. Um, that's not the reason we're doing this. Um, but that background information, just to say, uh, one of the, and I'm going to get to this in a minute, but one of the reasons we, we want to talk about Roman Catholicism is um, you probably have friends or neighbors or acquaintances, uh, maybe family members that are Roman Catholic, whether they are very committed or whether they're just very nominal, uh, you probably have or uh, will experience opportunities to share the gospel, to communicate um, with folks who are different. Um, but the point of that story at the beginning is just to, to uh, the other thing it highlights is that um, when we think about Martin Luther's 95 Theses, uh, it reminds us that there are significant differences between where we are at as a church in, the Pro in Protestant circles and Roman Catholicism. And sometimes I think we forget that because so much history has passed. And so we kind of think that, well, don't we kind of believe the same things, especially uh, when you talk to someone that's Roman Catholic, if you and even if they're very committed, Beth was even saying the other day, she's at the pool, she's, here's someone talking. I mean, they're having a Bible study, book club type thing, and they're talking about praying that the Lord will do this and that and dealing with their anxiety in biblical ways and things like that. So it, it sounds very similar. You talk about salvation and, and how we need to evangelize and there needs to be, um, the gospel needs to be shared. Um, so these things sound very similar. And so, but we, we have to remember there's a significant difference. So we're going we're gonna to do this series, and it's uh, what divides Catholics and, and Protestants, or uh, we might say Catholicism and biblical Christianity. And I think both those terms are good and helpful. Um, in some senses, I'd prefer to use the word biblical Christianity because it, it really highlights 
the uh, line of demarcation that has caused everything to be different, which is biblical Christianity. In other words, they, they would describe us as being fundamentalist in terms of we are, we're, we're just, everything's about the Bible for us. And that's true, actually, in a lot of ways, right? Um, so that really is the distinction. I think they see it that way and we see it that way. So when I say biblical Christianity, my goal is not to um, be flippant or rude as if they don't at all claim to hold to the Bible. It's just the fundamental line of demarcation is biblical Christianity. The Bible is our foundation or something else. Bible plus. And so that's why our first session this morning is going to be on authority. Is it Bible alone for authority or is it Bible plus? Uh, because from, so, so in one sense, I would say that the, um, that is not the most, uh, this, this may sound weird, but hang with me for a second. That is not the most important distinction in this sense. Justification by faith is the most important distinction because that is the gospel, the heart of the gospel. But this is foundational and line of demarcation because it's from this error that you get a wrong gospel. Like someone could be a Christian and not, and, and not believe a lot of important things about the Bible, um, but they are going to run astray really quick in a lot of areas. Or it may be shown that they really weren't a Christian at all, right? Um, so the, the Bible is really the, that foundational dividing line. Um, it is very important, and so that's why we have to start there. Um, so again, when you talk to Roman Catholics, you'll find uh, it, it's hard to have these conversations because we agree about basic doctrine of God stuff. We, we agree that, that God is triune, right? I mean, that, so when you talk to like Mormons and stuff, it's a little more clear. You're like, we're not, I mean, we're not even talking about the same God. Right? We're not even talking about the same Jesus. But again, you go to Roman Catholicism and you start describing who Jesus is, they're gonna, you're going to be in agreement on what you're saying about his deity, uh, his humanity, right? his sinless perfection, his death, his resurrection. Um, you start talking about the need to be justified. They use the word justified. Yes, we need to be justified by faith. They will agree with you on that. Now, the alone is the part that gets complicated right, for them. Um, so this, we're going to start with this major issue today, uh, ultimate authority. Where do we find ultimate authority? And uh, in future sessions, we'll look at, Lord willing, things like uh, mass and transubstantiation, uh, Mary and the saints, which kind of sounds like a band of some sort, um, justification, and then perhaps some other doctrines. So that's, that's where we plan on going. Uh, turn to Galatians chapter 1. Why do a series, and I've kind of already said this, but I, I just want to formalize it a little bit. Why do a series on what divides Roman Catholicism from biblical Christianity? Turn to Galatians 1. The, I have three different points I'll give you here. There's more that could be said. But the first is there's been an ecumenical movement, there continues to be, uh, to unite Roman Catholicism and biblical Christianity, uh, Protestants. So you can think of there was that whole like Lutheran and Catholics unite type moment that happened where they're, they're making statements together, trying to say, look, we're on the same page. We believe the same things uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, they did acknowledge certain differences still, but um, even saying that we're closer to one another on justification, and Martin Luther would be rolling over in his grave. Of course, Martin Luther's not our standard, but still, um, which is interesting because Lutheranism comes kind of from that vein of theological thought. But, um, but they say, listen, we have a lot of similarities. Can't we just get along? And so there's this ecumenical spirit uh, but the problem is the differences are very serious and they get to a matter of the gospel, uh, how a person is justified and made right with God. Uh, is there more one, than one mediator between man and God? There, there's disagreement over that 
between biblical Christianity and Roman Catholicism. Um, so it's pretty significant. Now, in, in Galatians, do you know, what's the error Paul is dealing with here? Does anyone remember in the book of Galatians? He was dealing with the uh, heresy of those who pre- were preaching a false gospel. They, were, they may have been orthodox in a lot of ways, but they were yeah. nonetheless corrupted by uh, intermingling, intermingling works of grace. That's right, yeah. So, so you have this, this another gospel. Look, look at uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. And he says this to the Galatian church, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven, so who's the we there? Apostles, Apostles, right? It's gonna be a big deal because Roman Catholicism is saying Peter is the apostle the vicar of Christ. And so anything that him and his descendants, the popes, say is on par with biblical truth. If you find, it's the same thing as saying you found it in the Bible. In fact, what we end up finding is it's actually more important because he's going to say things that don't line up with the Bible and we're still going to go with what he says. Okay, so if we apostles or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach, uh, preach to you, let him be accursed. That's pretty big language, right? Anathema. And the Roman Catholic Catholic Church, actually in the Council of Trent, pronounces its own series of anathemas um, against Protestants, right? So they're saying we're accursed. Um, They've since tried to reconcile some of that, but the point is it's in their official documents. Um, Verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So he wants to make that very clear. Well, um, if you... uh, Keep going, Galatians 2, verses 15 through 16. He deals with some of the error here that he's, that's being faced. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Look down at verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So he's dealing with this whole group that in his day were the Judaizers. They, they were Jewish converts to Christianity. And, and so they said, so, so they're affirming things about God. They, w- they would agree on doctrine of God stuff. They would even agree about fact, person and work of Jesus stuff. But when it started coming to how persons made right with God, it becomes, well, yeah, but you got to keep the Mosaic law. You got to keep the old covenant law. And they would really hammer home the, the, the most obvious thing, which was circumcision. This is what it means to be part of the people of God in the Old Testament. This is what we as Jews affirm. This is what the Gentile Christians need to affirm. And they have to be circumcised if they're going to be right with God. Um, and, so, and you see that back down in Galatians 5, verse 11 specifically. That's where Paul really deals with these Judaizers who are promoting specifically circumcision as a means to be right with God. Um, so, okay, so Paul says this about these Judaizers who basically have like only one or two things different from the true gospel message. But what does he say? That's enough to say this is a different gospel because we're dealing with how a person is made right with God. And let them be anathema. You see, you see what I'm saying? So, so why is this important? Because even though, yes, we agree on a lot of things, and it's similar to the situation in Galatians. 
agreeing on a whole host of things is fine, and Satan is fine with that. As if you if you get justification wrong, if you get how a person is made right with God wrong. So this is a significant thing, and so because there's an ecumenical movement, we need to be clear that we want to take the path of Galatians when we have a different gospel. And so, and I realize we haven't presented the whole case for the fact that it's a different gospel. That'll come over the following weeks, but that's that's what I'm saying. Uh, turn to Acts chapter 20. So the second reason I give here is that pastors must protect the flock from false doctrine. So turn to Acts chapter 20. And does anyone remember what's happening in Acts chapter 20? Who Paul's talking to here? Yeah, so he's talking to the Ephesian elders. So we have some pastors of this uh, church in Ephesus. Paul, an apostle, is coming through on his way uh, really towards, uh, towards Jerusalem, eventually towards Rome. And this is what he says in verses 28 through 30. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. <clears throat> so, uh, false doctrine, even and especially if it comes from those claiming authority to teach in the church, must be fought against. When it comes from a leader, they're a wolf. And a good shepherd fights off wolves. He doesn't, he doesn't just kind of passively say, well, you know, I don't want to offend anybody. No, he fights off the wolves. Um, and so pastors must protect from false doctrine. Again, I realize I haven't laid out the significant false doctrines besides just making reference to them. That's what the whole rest of the session is for. I'm, our sessions. I'm just trying to tell you why we're even doing this. Because I think there is a pull in a lot of circles towards, well, can't we all just get along? And I'm saying, there's a reason we can't just get along. It's too big of a deal. Uh, number three, pastors need to equip the saints. Uh, we need to be equipped to reach Roman Catholic neighbors with the true gospel. Again, I, I just mentioned this earlier, but you have conversation with a Roman Catholic friend, you're going to talk a, a lot of ways that sound very similar. So the only way you're going to be able to reach them is if you can get beyond the surface level, which means we have to have some basic understanding of where we differ. So you're using the word justification. Explain to me what that means, because I don't think it means the same thing it means when I say it. Those are the type of conversations you have to be able to eventually have. Uh, a couple caveats now. I want to give you three caveats real quick. We're not trying to be disagreeable for the sake of being disagreeable. Pride is, uh, can taint even the best desires. So I, I think we are right to still be Protestant, to still protest. But we have to be careful that it's not motivated by pride, right? Some people, it's like they're, they're only happy when they have someone to disagree with, right? That's like life. Like, I'm, I'm happy as long as I got someone to disagree with. And when I don't, then I'm kind of sad. That's not, that should not be our attitude. Um, we need to be humble. Uh, anything that is true that we have is because God has given it to us, right? It's like I'm a beggar who received all this from God. I can't go around boasting about it like it's mine, like I earned it, right? Or I created it. So there needs to be a sense of humility, we are, and we're not just trying to be disagreeable. And so part of that means I'm, we're not just trying to nitpick little tiny differences. This isn't like a discernment blog where we just go after every little tiny difference just so we can say we're better than the person we're correcting. Right? These are substantive, big differences that we're going to try to clarify. 
Number two, another caveat is uh, our desire is not to set up straw men arguments and then make ourselves feel good about ourselves. Um, the, the goal is to uh, go and see what, what does Roman Catholicism officially teach and then deal with that. That's the goal. So you're going to see in here, I've got a couple quotes or at least references to different things said in Vatican I, Vatican II. Um, now, that's not just like your pastors wrote a position paper in Roman Catholic circles. You understand that. When you have a document like Vatican I or Vatican II, these are on par with Scripture is what we're talking about in terms of authority. So this is, so, so it may be hard for us to understand, but I guess what I'm saying is, you, you may be thinking, well, why do you keep quoting from that? What if other Roman Catholics believe other things? They can't. If they're officially Roman Catholic, they cannot contradict, and we're going to get to that later today, they cannot believe something different than is in those documents. Okay, does that make sense? A lot of them do, though. A lot and a lot of them do. Which brings us to the third caveat, which is, we are not saying there aren't genuine believers even in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, now, if they are, if there are genuinely born-again people, and I believe there are, that would perhaps even go to Roman Catholic church services, uh, certainly who would call themselves Roman Catholic, um, but it's because they're not believing the official doctrine on things like justification that the Roman Catholic Church teaches, whether it's through not knowing it, they're just not familiar enough with it, which is probably a lot of folks, um, or they know it, but they disagree with those parts, even though they're not supposed to. They're, they're not being really a good Catholic in that sense, right? Um, well, the scripture is complicated enough that you start adding a bunch of stuff to it. Sure, yeah, you start adding things to scripture. Well, and, and the issue is going to be, is what we're going to see, when, when you uh, have more than one source of ultimate authority, because I'm going to tell you there are two other things they bring in there that are ultimate authority. That, how, how does that work when one thing says this and the other thing says that? That's going to be the problem we're going to run into. Um, so, that's good. Okay, so today we're looking at the line of demarcation, the clear line from which the, the parallel tracks on all these other doctrines really diverge, right? We may agree about who God is on a lot of things, but then this is the line. Scripture versus Scripture plus is the line where we, we're going in different directions, okay? So... Um, this is, this is significant because we need to know what the authoritative truth is about the way of salvation. And there, there are different ways of answering this. So our outline, we're going to look at different sources of authority uh, when it comes to truth. And then we're going to see, so I just want to lay out what those sources are. And then I want to come back, circle back around to them and say, okay, what are the problems with their sources of authority? So let's talk about uh, the Roman Catholic view on authority. They uh, often put it as if they, the way that one of the analogies they like to use is we have a three-legged stool when it comes to authoritative teaching. So there's not just one source of authoritative teaching, there are three. It's kind of like a stool. We have to have all three of these. They're all equal because without them, the stool doesn't stand. That's, that's kind of the view. So number one is the Bible. And um, we're going to come back and talk about some differences, but for now, just recognize they do receive the Bible as authoritative. Now, there's going to be an important difference in even that, and I'm going to point that out in a minute, but just, just take note of that. First Vatican Council um, <clears throat> says, these books the church holds to be sacred and canonical, not simply because they contain revelation without error, but because being written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they have God as their author and were, as such, committed to the church. So, hey, so far, so good. 
um, except for we have to talk about what they mean by the Bible. We'll get to that in a minute. But the, in general, that statement would be good. Um, tradition, that's the second thing. Tradition refers to oral teachings of Jesus and his apostles that they weren't written down, but they got passed down um, through the church, really through the official lines of the church, which would be the Pope and the whole kind of council of bishops. Um, the College of Bishops is what it's called. So uh, the, they have tradition that gets brought in and it is on par with scripture. Vatican I says, both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. So there's this equality they claim between tradition and um, the scripture itself. Uh, so uh, so f- for example, at this point um, where we live in history now, the, um, f- the idea that Mary was without sin, that, that would be uh, a tradition well, originally it was, it was a magisterium, which we're going to get to in a second. It was a, it was a teaching that was official, it, and, and it, then it becomes part of the tradition. So now that is truth. If you're Roman Catholic, that's true. You cannot deny that. Even if you read in Scripture, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When those two things collide, which one ends up taking a hike? The Scripture does. So you see what we're saying? The, the, the problem is going to happen because you've got these, these, these authorities that don't agree. Um, the third is magisterium. This is the teaching office of the Roman Catholic Church. It consists of the Pope together with the bishops in communion with him. The magisterium bears ultimate responsibility. So that's a key word, ultimate responsibility for teaching, sanctifying, and ruling the Catholic faithful. Moreover, it possesses the necessary authority to exercise its duties. This isn't just um, someone teaching. This is official teaching. When it is taught, it is true, and it must be received as truth. Um, but the truth has changed over the years. I mean. <laughs> Which is going to be one of the problems with why this system of truth doesn't work. Yeah, that's right. Saying that because it, it has shifted. Um, so they alone can give official interpretations of the Bible and tradition. So if you're going back and forth with, a, with even a priest on uh, an issue of interpretation, you might find that eventually their response is, if, if, you feel like, if, if, they, if you're really proving from Scripture your point, is, well, look, I don't have the authority to interpret Scripture. I don't have that level of authority. And then rather than going back and forth with you over what the scripture is actually saying, when they realize that you're communicating it in a way that seems to make sense when you read it on the face of it. Um, Vatican I says uh, this about magisterium. Now, uh, I'm going to, I give you a little bit of a quote. I'm going to start a little earlier. Now, since the decree on the interpretation of the Holy Scripture, so that's what we're focusing on, interpretation of Holy Scripture, profitably made by the Council of Trent. So, so this Vatican document is referring back to a council in 1545, so a couple hundred years earlier, and that was in response to the Protestant Reformation, by the way, uh, with the intention of constraining rash speculation has been wrongly interpreted by some, we renew the decree and declare it is its meaning to be as follows. So they're basically saying, since Trent, uh, people continue to have rash speculation. We're going to clarify again what by restating what we said then, that in matters of faith and morals, belonging as they do to the establishing of Christian doctrine, that meaning of holy scripture must be held to be the true one. Here, here's what, in other words, okay, so let me summarize that. The meaning of holy scripture the true interpretation must be the interpretation, quote, which Holy Mother Church held and holds since it is her right to judge of the meaning and interpretation of Holy Scripture. 
In consequence, it is not permissible for anyone to interpret Holy Scripture in a sense contrary to this, or indeed against the unanimous consent of the fathers. So there is official teaching from the teaching teaching, um, uh, setup of the church. Um, So you can't interpret it in an official way outside of that. It has to be interpreted in those ways. So this gets into things like uh, papal infallibility, other things like that, uh, which we're going to deal with a little bit um, because it fits in here. But uh, so in, in contrast to that, we have biblical Christianity. The source is the Bible alone. This really is the point of demarcation. Uh, from this flows all the other doctrinal differences. This is why in the Protestant, the, the Protestant Reformation, we have the solas, right? So sola scriptura, scripture alone. Now, just to, to clarify something, that doesn't mean that Protestants can't benefit from traditions. You guys will understand that. When it says sola, what it means is ultimate authority, final arbiter of reality. Um, so, so you might have certain church traditions and that may be all well and good as long as it lines up with what scripture says. But the problem comes when it's scripture plus something else for ultimate authority. And that, that's really the, the distinction here. That's the difference. Yeah. Can you um, speak to the distinction between this Catholic view in Jude 3, 1, which talks about uh, the true faith which was once delivered to the saints? So Jude, say it one more time, Jude. Jude in 1, 3 talks about the true faith which was once delivered yeah. to the saints. Yeah. Which we believe is true. Yeah. Okay, I mean, it's, I just wonder if you can speak that now. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, yeah, so, so the truth is... Wor- from the Catholics. That's right. So, yeah, that's a good verse. So Jude, so Jude uh, verse 3, uh, the, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, right? That is the gospel message. That is the new covenant. Where do we get the new covenant? It's written for us in the scripture, right? The old covenant came with writings, right? They had prophets who spoke. And then what, what, was, what made it as the Old Covenant was what was written down for all the rest of the people in that Old Covenant to hold to. When, the, when Jesus shows up, that's, a, hey, the New Covenant is coming, right? New Covenant comes, just like we have prophets then, now we have apostles, and what are we expecting? New writings, and we get them. And so Jude is, is, is signaling to us, once for all delivered means came through Jesus and his apostles, written down in the word eventually, right? Yeah, you'll find Catholics and Anglicans who will quote that scripture as one of the reasons why they have to have the church believing it. Yeah. Saying. Yeah. That's why I mentioned it. Right, yes, yeah, yeah. So, the, and we're, we'll get to a couple, um, like uh, First Timothy, when they talk about the church being the pillar and buttress of truth. Yeah. Can you repeat some of... Because we can only hear, I can only hear your response, and sometimes oh, I'm sorry. I'm not catching what the. You're not mic'd. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so we're talking about Jude uh, 3, um, which I, I, what does it say again? Um, it speaks of the true faith once delivered to the saints. Yeah. And, and the reason I brought it up is because in my experience with Catholics and Anglicans, I came from an Episcopal church years ago. That, that will be used as a reason why it's important that the church and tradition, and, and the Catholics believe in a magisterium, the Anglicans don't agree with that, but both of them have tradition, and they use that as a reason for significance that you can't just read the Bible yourself. You've got to have the church in charge of interpreting that. Yeah, 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 and we're, we're going to get, I'm going to come back to that a little more fully when I, I'm going to, but I'm going to go to a passage in First Timothy, but it's going to be the same basic question, so... 
so they have this three. So this three-legged stool is where they come from. We have the Bible alone, um, and so this is not a small creek. This is that you can just make a little bridge and cross. This is a chasm, and um, and the stakes are pretty high. So the problem. Let, let's get into the the problem here. The problem with Roman Catholics multiple authority. Roman Catholics view on multiple authorities. Um, when it comes to the Bible. Uh, I mentioned this, I alluded to this, the Roman Catholic Bible has some extra books in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, right, that they would say are part of the Old Testament, the Apocrypha. So they, they have extra books there. They have a few extra sections, uh, extra sections added in Esther and Daniel. Um, what, when were those added? Uh, so the Apocrypha, so that's a little, so it's a little bit of a complicated historical question. So you're talking about the Apocrypha? So the Apocrypha was written in between the end of the Old and the beginning of the New Testament. That's when the documents were written. Um, they were officially brought into the canon by like decree, right? By now tradition and magisterial teaching at the Council of Trent in 1545, uh, which was in response to the Reformation, which began in the early 1500s, right? So, so the reason, uh, so you, you have the reformers saying, look, uh, I'm not seeing purgatory in scripture, well, if you go to 1 Maccabees, you find stuff that the Roman Catholic Church has taken and run with to say, this is where we get our argument for purgatory or indulgences, um, which indulgences is really what kind of uh, was a spark that ignited the, the powder keg there with Martin Luther, right? That's what the 95 Theses were really mainly about initially. So they added it to answer some questions. They, they officially recognized it in order to settle the dispute. We have said this is true. Therefore, you are wrong and we are right because the document that we said is true says that we're true and we're right. Um, that's not to say that, that this wasn't received by others throughout church history, though. Some of them thinking it was canonical, others not, right? You had people who uh, wanted to keep it in there, even though, and so that's what I'm going to get into right now. Here's, here's the problem, is uh, historically the Jews did not receive it as part of the Old Testament. Um, so you have uh, Josephus living uh, early... A.D. time period, 37 to 100 A.D., uh, writing, and he's talking about how the Jews, uh, they had this succession of prophets that end at the time of Artaxerxes. Um, talks about Haggai and Malachi being kind of the, the last ones there. So the point is, Josephus, this, he's not a Christian. Uh, he's just a Jewish historian living during the Roman time period, and he's pointing to the fact that the Apocrypha is not, th these are some interesting historical books, but they are not, we don't see them as part of the canon. Um, we have others, uh, even early Christian leaders like Origen, who was uh, very well studied in Judaism, who uh, was very clear that it was not part of the canon. Um, where, where it comes into the, into the in, kind of accidentally into the Christian um, sphere here is you have uh, in 382 AD, you have Jerome translates uh, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and he makes a translation called the Latin Vulgate. So, uh, so actually, this is why I was going to read this earlier, and I didn't, but um, First Vatican Council says this, the, the complete books of the Old and New Testament with all their parts as they are listed in the decree and of the said council, and as they are found in the Old Latin Vulgate edition, are to be received as sacred and canonical. So the point is, their, their received text is the Latin Vulgate, which is written, it's a translation from the Hebrew Old Testament into Latin, from the Greek New Testament into Latin, okay? Um, that document, when Jerome translates it, he does what was happening in the Septuagint, which is getting a little complicated, I wasn't going to go into all this, but in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, 
the, the, because you had less Jews, in the, especially in certain areas, that, they, that were able to speak Hebrew. So they need it in Greek. So they get it translated into Greek. They also, though, are interested in those historical books in between the Testaments, not because they saw them as canon, but because they provided history that was important to them about what happened from about 500 years, right? So, so, so what ends up happening is in that Septuagint, as, as an added section that is very clearly set off from the canon, it's like, here's a section you may be interested in reading too. And it was always communicated as, this is interesting history, it's not, it's not canon, right? Even Jerome clearly says that because Jerome ends up including it in his Vulgate. The reason Jerome includes it in his Vulgate, uh, this is going to be disappointing to some of you, is Augustine encouraged him to do it. So, so Augustine, as great as he was, makes a pretty big error here. In, in wanting this included. Jerome doesn't want to include it, but he says, look, I'll include it. But what he, he does, what every other generation had done before him, he sets it off and he puts a note at the very beginning of like, the, I think it's the first book in there that says, basically, this is helpful history. This is not canon, right? I mean, he, he basically says that. The, and the Septuagint was, it was Jews that, that translated it, to be clear. Right. But it was under the direction of of, of a, um, the Ptolemies, I believe. It was a Ptolemy ruler that caused it to happen. And, and so it's, we, we can't view it with the same authority as... Right. It's a translation of... Right. So, so just as much as we... Man, when I read this, am I saying I'm reading the Word of God? Yes, but the, the original manuscripts, right, original languages are what I need to go back to if I have a question. And the study notes aren't, aren't authoritative. That's right. Yep. And so they would, yeah, they'd have no, notes in there and stuff like that. Um, so, so anyway, so that's a lot of history. You're not going to remember that. I'm not going to remember it in a couple weeks. Um, Luke, Luke 11, 49 through 51 says this. Jesus says this. So the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel, where do we find Abel's death? Genesis. Is he the first one to die? I mean, yes, right? I mean, Adam and Eve die spiritually um, initially, but in terms of physical being, being martyred, Abel is martyred. Uh, and Zechariah. Zechariah's death is recorded in 2 Chronicles 24. Is, and does anyone know how the um, Hebrew uh, canon, what the last book is in their order of books? Zechariah, I think is. So, well, so Zechariah, you're right. This, this passage where Zechariah's death is recorded is at the end of their canon because Second Chronicles is the end of their canon. They, in other words, they, same books, they just ordered it with Chronicles. The reason is because Chronicles basically is a summary of all of this stuff that's going on. So they put it at the end. My point is not to say that the order really matters. I don't think it really matters if you put this book here or that book here. The point is that all the books need to be in there, right, that are going to be canon. So, but what's the point here? The point here is that... Um, is that uh, Zechariah is actually not chronologically, uh, let me think about this, hold on, um, is not chronologically the last martyr. Uh, the, the last martyr chronologically is found in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 26. So what does that mean? Jesus is saying, he's, he's using what? Not time, but canon as his structure when he lays out the Old Testament. And he's saying from Abel, the beginning, Genesis, all the way to the end, Jews, of your book, you have been the ones killing the prophets. So my, my point is, I understand this is not a slam dunk right here, but Jesus seems to be indicating the canon he's working with is one that does not include books written 
after what would have been Second Chronicles, which would be the Apocrypha, right? Uh, when Jesus breaks down the layout of the Old Testament, he uses the same kind of three-part structure that the Jews of his day would have used. Uh, the point is that the Jews are not seeing these extra books as can- canonical, though certainly they benefited from them historically. Um, okay, we're spent. We have to pick up the pace here a little bit. Um, so, okay, so chronologically, canonically, let's talk about... Uh, Hmm. Okay, I already mentioned that. Let's just skip ahead to uh, authority of tradition. <clears throat> Roman Catholicism points to tradition. Uh, they would say things, uh, they point to places like Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Uh, they, the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And they would say, see, look, the apostles' teaching, uh, this is not just what the apostles wrote, it's also their teaching. Therefore, we still need the apostles' teaching today, which comes down to us through tradition. It wasn't written down, but we continue to receive it as tradition through the Pope, through um, other magisterial-type teaching, and it becomes our tradition. Um, So it is true that the early church needed the apostles' teaching, um, and prior to the completion of the New Testament, they did get that orally as well as in letters. Um, Once they're dying off, we have a final uh, grouping of books, though, In other words, where do we go to get the apostles' teaching now? This verse doesn't prove we also get it orally. You have to add a couple premises to make that work. You have to kind of make extra claims besides, you can't just read this verse and be like, mic drop, there you go, tradition. It doesn't work. You have to add some stuff to that, right? So um, so we we have to add, uh, uh, for one thing, that... um, they have to add what they want to prove, which is that the completion of the New Testament is not the sole authority. Rather, we have to have tradition. So in other words, it's an argument that actually begs the question. It assumes the conclusion in the argument, right? So, so we're going to say we need tradition because this verse, and this verse tells us we need tradition. And so it's kind of just all built into that reading of the verse. Uh, the other thing is you also have to assume apostolic succession in the role of Pope and other things. You have to assume that there is an official apostolic-like office that will continue where we're going to get this tradition. The, and so that's one of their big claims. And that's why they say, look, the Pope sits in the seat of Peter, who was the first Pope. And, you know, and so it just keeps going down through, through him. This is the line we get it from. But that's not in this verse. You see my point? Now, this, I'm not disproving that here. I'm just saying this verse doesn't prove what they say it proves. You need to add some premises to it to make it prove that. Um, Now, if we look at Mark chapter 7, you can turn to Mark chapter 7, verses 5 through 9. This is what Jesus says about authority. Mark chapter 7, verses 5 and following, the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So think about what's happening here. Their, Their accusation is, your followers, they're not following the tradition of the elders. Sounds an awful lot like we have this extra thing beyond the Old Testament, which is our tradition of how we read the, the Old Testament, right? Um, and he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. And here's the issue, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So what does Jesus say about human traditions? Um, when they contradict with God's word, we got a problem. 
right? When they are in addition to God's word, like here's an extra requirement beyond what God has said, we have a problem. Um, like, like this washing of hands stuff. That's not necessarily wrong as a tradition if you want to have this whole like hand washing thing in your culture, fine. But to establish it as why, why are you not following the traditions that have been handed down from the elders? Right? You're required to follow that just as much as you're required to follow what Moses wrote. You see, Jesus is confronting that and saying, this is hypocritical. You're, you're, and then he goes on and explains more of the hypocrisy issue. But, um, so, uh, now the response sometimes is, well, this, this, merely, this merely just deals with the issue of erroneous human tradition. Um, but how do we know what's erroneous and what's not? We're right back to the same question again. What is the ultimate authority? And it's scripture, right? Acts chapter 17. Look at Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, okay, um, so how do we determine if it's erroneous or not? And, and so again, they're saying, listen, as long as it's not erroneous, it's fine. Um, but uh, how do we determine if it's erroneous or not? Well, their answer seems to be, according to the magisterium kind of view that we just mentioned, we go with whatever the interpretation is of the Pope. But again, we circled back around to, well, it's right because the Pope said it's right. It's not erroneous because the Pope said it's not erroneous. You see, we have a problem here. Uh, Acts chapter 17, Paul's dealing with some people he brought the gospel to. These are Jews. And it says, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. So they're receiving this, this teaching from Paul with all eagerness. And what are they doing? Examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Um, what do they use to evaluate Paul's teaching of the gospel? The scriptures. In this case, it would be the Old Testament scriptures. They're comparing to make sure it doesn't contradict anything there, that what he's saying pointed to the New Testament points to it, in fact. Um, now, look, Paul doesn't say, listen, um, uh, don't, no, I'm an apostle. That's, that, he doesn't say that. He's not frustrated that they're going to the scriptures comparing what he as an apostle is saying because, well, I have the magisterium authority. What is he? he says they're noble to go check it against the scriptures. And th so here's the issue. Paul is an apostle and he's saying this. You see the problem for, for Roman Catholic view here? If Paul is an apostle and he's saying you are noble when you compared my teaching against the scriptures, then that's right. So circle back around. What do we do with tradition? Well, I'm not, again, I'm not arguing every single tradition has to be completely thrown out the window, but I'm saying if tradition does not hold an authority above scripture, which is what the Roman Catholic Church ends up saying because they have many traditions which are not in the scripture, which they say are required. That's the issue. So, so does that passage in Mark 7 deal with them? It does deal with them. Um, okay, problems with the magisterium. First uh, Timothy 3, I'll just read through this real quick. If you want to turn there, you can, but I'm going to start reading it for the sake of time. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. So they point to that pillar buttress language and they say, look, the church is an avenue of authoritative truth, right? That's what it's saying. That's according to their interpretation of it. But look at the next, well, listen to the next verses. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2. 
Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Okay. Um, so here, here's the issue. Um, I, again, I'm not, I'm not saying we don't need the teaching office of the church. God has given elders and pastors to teach. That's true for the building up of, of the saints. But the argument that's being made is pillar and buttress means the church has the same authority as scripture. But Paul clearly lays out some things if you keep reading and, and points out, look, but if anyone starts teaching things that don't line up with what you find in scripture, they're to be rejected. So the question is, is that what's happening with this doctrine of magisterium? Do they deny marriage? Sometimes. Now the argument is, so, so priests in certain, is, I, and I went and read some Roman Catholic like apologists to see if I was tracking, making sure I was understanding what they were trying to say. So the priests are not, in certain traditions, most of the tradition of the Catholic Church are not supposed to be married. Now there are certain exceptions. Like, anyway, I'm not gonna get into all that, but generally that's the rule. And so the response is, yeah, but we're not forbidding marriage. They voluntarily choose not to be married. Now we're only gonna select priests who have voluntarily chosen not to be married. I don't know how else to take that except for it's forbidding marriage. That's what you're doing. It, it's a distinction without a difference. You're saying the same thing. So my point again then just circles back to this idea of how do we know what truth and error is? You're telling me this magisterium can be infallible just like scripture and I'm saying your magisterium has erred in obvious ways. So your doctrine of magisterium isn't working. Yeah. There's also a, a little problem with the way that the word church is used. That word is ecclesia, which right. is the called out once of God, the assembly of yep. the called out of God. What's in view there in that scripture is not a massive right. hierarchy with a hierarchy. Yeah. It is all of the called out of God yeah. in assembly. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, so, so it's not even just talking about um, the church as a hierarchical structure here, right? It's talking about the called out ones of God. Yeah, that's a good point. You really helped me this point because for a long time I never saw my Catholic friends who weren't Catholic anymore would say, I don't believe in the church anymore. They never had a beef with Jesus. Yeah. It wasn't like I rejected Christ. It was, I don't believe what the church says. Yeah. So the problem was, yeah um we are like out of time uh um <clears throat> So, okay, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to, um, I do have some more things about the problems with the magisterium, but I think we can roll that into a future session uh, where we're going to talk about, maybe I'll bring some more stuff in related directly to the popes. I'm going to talk about uh, Mary and the saints. Maybe maybe we can bring the issue of the of popes into there. But there's other problems with magisterium, which, which really, they all circle around what I'm saying, which is the magisterium has gotten it wrong. And you're telling me it's an ultimate authority on par with scripture. And, I'm, and, and so I'm saying, 
number one, you have to acknowledge they've got it wrong because of certain things that have happened in Catholic history where you can't say they were right because they disagreed with each other. There were three popes at once and we had all sorts of issues going on. Um, but anyway, it all revolves around that same issue. So let's, let's wrap it up here though. Um, does this matter? Is this a big deal? Um, yes, this is a big deal because this is the point of divergence. So this is the minute of angle here, right? So minute of angle is like we have like launch and, and the angular, angular difference here between where, where I'm aiming at and where it's going, that may not seem really big right out of the gate, although I'd say this is, but it's going to have a mass, it's, the traje- it's set a trajectory that's gonna have a massive difference the further away you get, the further down the line you get. So this is a huge deal because this is why when we get to the question of what is the gospel, we differ. And that is why this is such a big deal. It is a big deal in and of itself. To reject scripture as the ultimate authority is a big deal, huge deal. The reason it's a big deal though, like, explosive deal is because you, you you end up with a different gospel. And that's what ends up happening in, and again, I'm talking official Roman Catholic teaching. You may have Roman Catholic friends that are genuinely born again and they truly understand the gospel and are believing it, but it's, what I'm saying is it's in spite of what the Roman Catholic Church is teaching. So why talk about this? Because if you, this is what you have to believe to officially be considered a Roman Catholic, right? Um, and so we, we have to address it as they have laid it out for us, which is, uh, their official teaching. Martin Luther, uh, the solas are important here. Martin Luther said it well at the Diet of Worms in uh, 1521. He's standing trial after having posted the 95 Theses and, and basically been ruled an outlaw. He's brought there to give account uh, for be- his beliefs. And he says this, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you uh, for your word. Um, God, we don't delight in in one sense. We really just don't delight in, in having to... Um, be combative, and yet we delight in being courageous and uh, speaking the truth in love because we know it's the only means of rescuing people, of uh, seeing people come to know the one true Savior and uh, all that he's done. And so we pray that you would help us to, in love, speak the truth. Um, Help us not to back off from either of those. Uh, Help us not to be arrogant or prideful um, by um, thinking that we are something special, but also help us not to be arrogant or prideful in um, not speaking the full truth of your word, uh, even when, when others would strongly disagree with that. Help us to be humble before you uh, so that we can love those around us. Uh, we thank you for your word, which is our guide and our only sure source of truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.